it's important when you're, you're reading through the Bible to understand that the Bible isn't a series of disconnected stories that you, you would read and then hope to get some sort of truth uh, out of, and then maybe you could have a better life. Instead, the Bible is this one unified story from Genesis to Revelation, and it's telling us things. It's telling us very specific and very important things like there, there is a God. And then the Bible tells us what that God is like. And then it tells us about ourselves, who we are, what's gone wrong with the human race, and uh, what can put it right again. Those are the main questions the Bible's addressing. And specifically, these are the main topics that Moses, the author of Genesis, is trying to address to this first congregation. You remember the first congregation to hear Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is not Adam and Eve. First congregation are the Israelites. They've just been freed. And Moses is trying to say to these people who have, have been in slavery for 400 years and have been serving underneath a, a host of other gods to say, no, there is one God. He's the creator. This is what he's like. This is what you're like. This is why you've gotten into the position that you've gotten in. And this is how you can and how you can get back right with God. And so in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Moses is primarily talking about God and what he's like. And then he talks about who we are. We're this, the, the pinnacle of his creation. We're the, the one creature that was made in his image. And then in Genesis chapter 3, our text this morning, Moses begins to tell us what went wrong with the human race. And then he just begins to hint at what will put it right again. If you look back with me at Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, you see this. These are the generations of the heaven and earth. This, this phrase, these are the generations, it's a, it's a marker. It's like if you were reading through a book and you had chapter breaks. This is sort of a chapter break. It's, it's ten times throughout the book of Genesis. So in these 50 chapters or 50 chapters we have, there are these ten breaks. These are the generations. And the way you think about that is it says, well, whatever happened to? So they've, uh, Moses talked about the creation of heaven and earth, and then he's saying, so whatever happened to the good creation? And so God, uh, Moses begins to tell us about that in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 before we get to another one of these that's called, in the Hebrew, it's called the Toledot. The, these are the generations. The, the first congregation to hear this in Genesis 1 and 2, they were certainly amazed that there was one God. They were certainly amazed at his creation. They were incredibly amazed that they were actually made in God's image. They knew that there was one person made in God's image, but that was the Pharaoh. And when Moses says, no, everyone's made in God's image, that was just a mind-blowing concept for them at that time. And yet, as they listened to this story that began in the beginning... And this perfect, very good creation that you get to at chapter 2, they were former slaves. So they knew, they knew something had gone wrong. They, they, they were amazed at this beginning, but they knew something had to go wrong between that point and where they are today. And, and, and you know, it turns out that, that having a clear understanding of what's gone wrong is particularly important because if you don't really understand what's gone wrong you're never really going to find the right solution 
I think most of us can pick up the newspaper or read on our computer screen or watch on our television and say, something's gone terribly wrong. And if you have any personal insight, you can just look at your own soul and say, something's gone terribly wrong. But if you don't really know what's gone wrong, if you don't really know what happened, then you're going to start looking for solutions either for yourself or for the world. And you're going to try to find solutions that really aren't the answer because you have really you've really misdiagnosed the problem. Let me give you an example of that. Beatrice Webb was a a prominent social reformer who lived in England around 1900. She and her husband were very wealthy and they were activists, particularly in terms of taking care of the poor. And Beatrice Reb was a a good person to write a diary. You could read her diaries today. And she makes this entry in 1890, and she's the age of 32. So this wealthy activist trying to take care of the needs, especially for the poor. She's 32 years old, and this is what she writes in her diary. I have staked all on the essential goodness of human nature. See, I know there's a problem. And, and the solution, her solution is, I believe deep down that, that everybody's good. Man, that's, that's still prevalent today. Deep down, I mean, you've got some external problems, but if we could get deep down, deep down, you're really good. And so she staked everything on the essential goodness of human nature. 35 years later. 1950 or 25 reflecting back she's reflecting back on this journal entry i now realize <laughs> i now realize how permanent are the evil impulses and instincts in us and how little they can seem to change like the greed for wealth and power I realize that mere social machinery will never change that. We must ask better things from human nature, but will we get a response? No amount of science or knowledge has been of any avail. Unless we curb the bad impulse in ourselves, how can we get a better social institution? So so it's a remarkable insight that Beatrice Webb, she had, she understood she staked all of her hope on the essential goodness of human nature, and she had actually staked her hope on the problem. See, she, she thought if, if humanity could sort of get down to its core, then, then humanity could solve these problems, and she staked all her hope on the problem. The problem was at humanity's core. See, she didn't really have a good diagnosis of really what the problem was. And then she understood, hey, fortunately, she learned she lived long enough to understand that she had a massive misdiagnosis of the actual problem. In Genesis chapter three, Moses, like a surgeon, he provides an accurate diagnosis for us of the the problem, not just the problem with the world, but the problem with our own soul. And then he begins to hint at the solution. So we're going to look at that this morning. And I feel like I've said this every week in our study of Genesis. There's so much more here than I possibly have time to to convey. I think I mentioned to you last week uh, one popular um, uh, preacher. He had done 14 sermons on Genesis 1 and 2. And I did two sermons. On Genesis 1 and 2. So, you know, we could spend a lot of time in these texts and that they would be profitable 
But I'm just going to try to make a couple of points. Look, just let me give you an example of what would be worth chasing, but we can't chase here today. The first three words, now the serpent. I mean, just that you just want to say, okay, full stop. Where did the serpent come from? I've never heard of a serpent in the first two chapters. And why is this serpent talking? And isn't it unusual for Adam and Eve to see the serpent talking? Weren't they just caught off guard by that? And is the serpent Satan? And who's Satan? And where did Satan come from? And if God made everything good, where did evil come from? See, these are all great questions. And I hate to pop that bubble right now, but oh, I'm not going to answer those questions for you this morning. Because that's not primarily what the text is trying to answer. And if you're a good student of the Bible and you've got Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology, chapter 20, you just go there, you can answer most of those questions. If you don't have that book, it's in the library, you can go check it out. You can read one of those chapters this, this afternoon and you can get the answers or you can get the beginning of the answers to those questions. But as good as those are, questions those are, as right as those questions are, that's not the primary interest of this particular text. So I want to focus on three things this morning, the lie, the tree and temptation, and the rest of human history. The lie, the tree and temptation, and the rest of human history. First of all, the lie. And here I'm just going to point out the obvious. First thing to notice is that the tone precedes the temptation. I mean, did, did God actually say? I mean, did he really say? It's a tone. It's a tone. Tone always precedes temptation. When, when the serpent is asking this woman, did, did God really say? He's not ask, asking some sort of exploratory question like, hey, I'm not sure what God said. I've got my pencil and pad out. Let me make sure I got it down. Let me write it down. That's not what he's doing. He's not trying to, to write that down. No, he's, he's not trying to find out what God said. Instead, he's mocking what God has said. I mean, come on, Eve. Really? I mean, that's what, what, that's what God really said? See, see prior to the serpent uh, challenging, directly challenging what God said, he's first trying to change their attitude toward what God says. He doesn't want to go right in and challenge, hey, I don't think God said this. He, he's just trying to shift the attitude. He's just trying to make a little shift in their thinking, a little shift in their emotions before, before he gets to the direct challenge. The, the serpent's tone is like a, a chuckle of contempt. You know that chuckle, don't you know? Oh, come, on. <laughs> come on. You've heard that. You've said that. It's, that. it's that challenge that just he's trying to shift the attitude. The serpent understands that getting Adam and Eve to shift their attitude towards God is going to be the first crack in the dam. And once the crack is formed, once their attitude is shaped in a different way, then he can just begin to pour all kinds of lies through that crack into their soul. And see, once you chuckle at what God has said, you're not very far away from disbelieving that God actually said anything at all. That first chuckle, that first attitude, how can that be? It's just the first crack. And a thousand lives begin to pour through that first crack. I love how Tim Keller says it. More often than not, we lose God not through argument. More often than not, 
We lose God not through argument, but through atmosphere. You see, see what the serpent's trying to do? He's just trying to change the atmosphere. Once I change the atmosphere, then I can begin to work on another piece. This, this chuckle of contempt, it, it happens all the time. Let's just take one example. Let's say you're a college student and you're watching real time with Bill Maher. That's only college students have time to read, to, to watch real time with Bill Maher. Uh, ironic uh, title to the television show because very little real actually happens during the time of the show. But anyway, Bill Maher, this comedian, this sort of social commentator, political tom- commentator, very hostile to Christianity. I was just watching one of his clips this week and he had a dialogue with a pretty well-known Christian uh, newspaper writer. And, and this is more or less how the dialogue went. It's about a 10 minute clip and he begins sort of in a mocking tone. You don't really believe that. Moses part of the Red Sea that Jonah got swallowed by a fish. I mean, come on, you're a smart guy. You write for the New York Times. I mean, you don't believe that, do you? The same sort of chuckle of contempt. A few minutes later, now when he says that, the audience, it laughs. The audience laughs. Second, he has a leading statement. So we're shifting from this mocking tone to a leading statement. You do understand that all religion is anti-intellectual. I mean, you are agreeing with me. Let's just put the premise out there that we're all standing on. It's if you're religious, it really in any way, it's anti-intellectual. Crowd laughs. A few minutes later, half the Bible is BS. And the crowd cheers. See, and if you're a college student and you're sitting around with a bunch of other college students and they'd all start chuckling and you believed have believed this and then you just start to chuckle. Maybe because you're embarrassed, maybe because you've become uncertain. You see, the atmosphere gets changed. A little crack begins. And if you're not careful, Satan just pours thousands of lies into that crack. Second, with a change of atmosphere, the serpent serpent begins to smuggle in this assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. It's huge. He smuggles in with this statement. Well, I mean, let's stand back and let's judge what God has to say. Instead of me being under God's word, I'm going to be outside of God's word. And I've got to use my own intellect and I've got to look at this word. And I've got to decide for myself whether this is right or not. Serpent smuggles into Eve's mind this idea that she should stand beside. She should somehow examine God and God's word. And then she should... She should use her own judgment. Say, well, did God really say this? Third, once Eve is no longer standing under God's word, once the atmosphere has been changed, then a distortion begins. Verse 1, notice the wording. You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. See, the serpent changes God's positive provision. You can eat of Every tree except for one. Instead of looking at all the positives, what does the serpent do? 
He, he, he changes it. He turns it into a, a negative prohibition. And I want you to see this subtle distortion because it happens all the time. Instead of seeing all the wonderful things God has provided, Satan shifts her focus so she only sees the one thing God has prohibited. So there's thousands of great options. And instead of seeing any of those, now she's only focused on this one thing. And it's not a positive thing. It's a negative thing. So God becomes restrictive. Every teenager has felt this way. God is the ultimate killjoy. See, there's so many great things out there, but God's so restrictive. He's so prohibitive. He's just this ultimate killjoy. It's this distortion that the serpent works. How many of you have this app on your on your iPad? I don't know if it's on an iPhone. It's called Photo Booth. You know what this is? You, it's probably other apps, but it's the way you would take a picture and then you could distort your, your, the face or the image of the picture. So when you get to photo booth, you come up and in the middle of these nine squares is the normal picture of your face or whatever you're taking a picture of. Hopefully you're not taking a lot of pictures of your face, but let's just say. But then all the other eight squares around are all distorted, different colors or twists, or you can make your face look really long or really short. You've probably seen it. It's a pretty fun app. And that's exactly what's happened. There's one normal way to look at this, and Satan's trying to get them in any other square. And it's just one click away. It's just one step away. And then we're going to begin to distort. And instead of looking at everything God has done and seeing it as very good, I'm only looking at one thing. All my attention now is riveted on this one thing. And once I get to this one thing, then Satan begins to distort. Oh, God doesn't want you to have that. Your life would be so much better if you had that one thing. And so the distortion begins. Fourth and finally, the serpent then tells an outright lie. He can't just tell an outright lie at the beginning. He's got to go through these steps. And notice that the serpent doesn't deny God's existence. He doesn't say, well, you know, God doesn't even exist. He doesn't do that. He doesn't care if people think God exists. The serpent doesn't deny that God actually said something. He's fine with that. No, instead, and this is the lie, this is the important part, the serpent denies the goodness of God. With the lie, he proclaims to Adam and Eve and to us, God can't be trusted. There is a God he speaks, but you can't trust him. If you really want to be happy, if you really want to experience life the way it's meant to be lived, then you've got to take your life in your own hands. You can't trust that God. He's prohibiting you from having things that you really desire. So you can't trust him. It's fine if you believe that he exists. Just realize he's not trustworthy. And who's trustworthy? You are. Your vision. Your emotions. Your desires. Your intellect, you can trust those things. That's the lie. Derek Kidner put it this way in his commentary. By the end of verse 5, God will henceforth be regarded as a rival and an enemy. It's a lie many people continue to believe. It's a lie many of us still lean towards. 
You can tell you're leaning towards it if you have fear. Uh, He can't be trusted. That's why I'm afraid. He doesn't really understand what's going on, so he needs me to insert myself into this situation. Anxiety. Greed. Lusts. Grumbling. Those are all signs that you're leaning towards, I can't trust God. If we really want to experience life the way it's meant to be lived, we've got to take matters into our own hands. That's the lie. The tree and the temptation. The tree. Why, why does this tree even exist? Why did God put the tree in the garden? I mean, you sort of read through his story and say, hey, God, let's get rid of this tree. I mean, come on, this is causing a lot of problems. I mean, it's just one tree. The existence of the tree serves as a constant reminder to Adam and Eve that they're not God. See, God had said, you're in my image, and you're going to reign and rule, you're going to have dominion over creation, but I want you to make sure there's one authority, and you're not it. And so I've got to put something in here so you understand that I'm God, and you're not. You've given, been given a lot of responsibility, but not all responsibility. You've given some authority, but not all authority. That belongs uniquely to the Creator. And notice that God never explains what's so bad about eating the fruit of this tree. He never has a dialogue with with them about it. He just gives them a command and a consequences. Don't eat or this is going to happen. It's not not a long dialogue. And I just wonder why God didn't have this explanation. Why didn't he, in in 2.17, sort of continue on and say, okay, if you eat of the tree, there will be endless suffering and misery and death, and the whole creation will be affected by just one bite of of this fruit. Why didn't he say that? Because I think if they had said that, if he had said that, they would have said, oh, that's what's going to happen? Okay, (laughs) no problem. Put a rope around the tree, never touch the tree. That's what's going to happen. No problem. Why doesn't God explain himself there? And I think it's because God didn't want to give this explanation because he didn't want Adam and Eve to do a cost-benefit analysis. You see, if you give the explanation, then it's, well, okay, there's some costs and there's some benefits. There's, uh, I, I, I look at myself, I judge this, and then, and I don't think he wants that. I think he wants to just put the tree there and say, trust me. And when they say why, he's going to say, because I said so. And every parent, you know this, do you not? Every parent, you lay down a law in your house and you have a five-year-old. What's the first question? Why? Why? And you probably, as a good parent, you try to explain it a dozen different ways, right? But what what does the five-year-old keep doing? Why? Why? And what do you come to rather quickly if they're five? Because I said so. It's not a mystery. You're looking at your five-year-old saying, trust, just trust me. I know so much more about life than you possibly could know. So can you just trust me? There's things you can't possibly understand. And even if I explained them to you, you wouldn't get them. So all I can say is don't do this. But when it comes to God, we say why and we're not happy with because I said so. And Adam and Eve weren't happy with because I said so. And God's not wanting to give a cost benefit analysis. He's wanting them to just say, I trust you. 
That's why the tree is there, the temptation. You see this in verse 6. So, all this atmosphere has changed. The crack has formed. The, the, the serpent's beginning to spill through this crack, these lies. And now the woman, instead of focusing on all the positives, she's drilled down on this one thing. And she's now no longer looking at God. She's no longer looking at Adam. She's no longer looking at the creation. She's looking at one thing. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, she ate it, she gave some to her husband, and he ate it. Two things I want us to just to notice about this. Again, very obvious. First, just the appeal. These things happen today still. It's good for food. It has a fleshly, physical temptation. I feel physically that I need to have this. Secondly, it's the delight to the eyes. It's an emotional temptation. It's a, a lust it's not just going to fit in and fill in a physical need. It's going to fill in this emotional need. And finally, it's going to make me wise. It's a prideful, intellectual temptation. And, and the serpent just leads her to want all three of these things at the same time. Any one of these things is strong enough to derail most of us. But all three of them coming to play, this physical, emotional, intellectual temptation. And listen to the Apostle John's warning about the same appeal. Now, thousands of years later, in 1 John 2.15, he says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For all that is in the world, number one, the lust of the flesh. Number two, the lust of the eyes. And number three, the boastful pride of life. They're not from God, they're from the world. See, these are the same temptations. God no longer, Eve no longer has God in mind. She has herself in mind and she has this one tree in mind. And the second thing I want you to notice is just the speed. She took, she ate, she gave, he ate. All in half a verse. And a whole chapter could be devoted to this. A whole book could be devoted to this. But what Moses is trying to say is once that crack is open, it happens. And it happens with, with such tremendous speed. And it, it, it not only involves you, it begins to involve other people. And I'm sure you've experienced this scenario in your own life. You're in the wrong atmosphere. Maybe it's an atmosphere of your mind. You've grown suspicious of God. Maybe you're physically in the wrong atmosphere. You find yourself in a place that you shouldn't be. You're, you're a businessman. You're traveling alone. You're a college student. You're in the wrong group of people. And you think, well, maybe nobody's going to see me. You're in this wrong atmosphere. And then in this atmosphere, some word comes into your mind, gets whispered in your mind. You need to take life into your own hands. There's something fun right here that you know is prohibitive, but you need to take control because God's prohibiting you from having a good time. And you should reach out and you should take hold of this thing. And in a single moment, you do something with such speed and you spend the rest of your life trying to hide from it. Most of us. Probably all of us have this scenario in our lives. We're in the wrong atmosphere. 
a crack got created. A lie got whispered. You took a hold of something or someone. And it happened with such speed. And now what happened in a moment, you have to spend your whole life trying to hide, hoping no one's going to find this out about me. The temptations, the pattern in the garden are the same today. Third and final point, the rest of human history. We hide, God seeks. Verses 8 and 9. Because of sin, because of our separation from our Creator, we, we spend our lives hiding. It's the first thing Adam and Eve try to do. They, they're hiding from each other. They're also hiding from God. And we hide. We, we hide behind our money. We hide behind our clothing labels. We hide behind our cars, our houses. We hide behind our diplomas or positions or titles. We're constantly projecting false images up on Facebook or Snapchat, just trying to make sure people understand we got a great life. Please don't really look inside. We're desperately hoping people will never discover who we are. And unfortunately, so many people don't actually know who they are themselves. So many people who have issues... They, they can't even assess who they are. So they have no hope of trying to move away from the situation because they don't know their own soul. They've hidden themselves from themselves. And they have this sort of this false image of themselves. And they've staked their, their solution on the problem so many times. So verse 9, when God calls out to Adam, where are you? I mean, it's not like Adam's great at hide and seek. And he's like, Wow. You really got me this time, Adam. Where are I mean, where are you? Can't see you. Adam didn't know where he was. Adam didn't know who he was. God's kindly coming towards Adam and saying to Adam, do you have any idea who you are now? Do you have any idea where you are now? Adam's not just hiding, he's lost. And his problem, the problem with humanity, is that we've become disconnected from God and we're lost. That's the rest of humanity. But thankfully, also, the rest of human history is that God seeks. And this is the good news. This is the first hint of how God is going to put things right. When, when Adam and Eve cut the cord from God, God doesn't go away. Amen. Oh, that's such good news. I mean, if I had been God and said, hey, I just put you in this great place and you immediately cut me off. Well, forget about you. I can start all over again. But that's not what he does. He sees everything about Adam and Eve. He sees everything about you. There is nothing hidden in his eyes about your life and your soul. Not one thing. He knows way more about you than you know about you. And he's still coming and calling out to you. That's the gospel. He's still seeking people who are trying to hide from him. God sees all the ugliness in us on our soul. And as we hide, God seeks. Not just in the garden, but here this morning. He's calling out in this text. Do you know who you are? Do you know where you are? 
Do you hear me calling out to you despite your desire to hide from yourself, from other people, and even me? I'm still calling out. This is a theme that runs through the whole Bible. Humanity constantly disconnecting themselves from God. God constantly seeking. If you ever find God, you will always know it's first he found you. No one really seeks until they've been found by God. The ultimate expression of God seeking, and this is what is part of the story we know, but Adam and Eve doesn't know, is going to be found in John chapter 1, which starts just like Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. In the beginning, what? The Word, the word became flesh, and the Word dwelt among. Eugene Peterson says the word moved into the neighborhood. He had to come so close, so close to calling. I'm constantly coming. I'm going to make this huge journey just to get as close to you as I can to continue to call out to people who continue to to hide from me. And many centuries later, after Adam and Eve took looked at a tree and ate the first piece had a bite of the first piece of this fruit. And when they did, they're putting themselves in God's place. The Bible tells us that Jesus came, and in another garden, he looked at a different kind of tree. And he put himself in our place. He's reversing the curse. We looked at the tree and wanted to put ourselves in God's place. Jesus comes and looks at a tree and says, I'll put myself in your place. That's the gospel. On the cross, Jesus puts himself in the place where you and I deserve so that he might put things right again. And of course, the story unfolds from Genesis chapter three. But you just get the just the first hint of that in this text. And so we come to the communion table this morning, and it's appropriate because I wonder when Jesus is at at this first communion, it's the last supper and the first communion, I wonder if while he's sitting there and he offers the bread, what does he say? Remember what he says? Take and eat. And I just wonder when he's sitting there saying, take and eat, if he, wonder, if he wondered how costly that first taking and eating was going to be. So he's reversing that fall and saying, now, here, you can take it eating again. You can come to me and you can find forgiveness in the one who's taken his place where you and I deserve to be on the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come to this, this table. It's very common elements expressing a, and I don't have the words for it, an incredibly uncommon event, a, a, a divine event, an eternal event, that you, you saw us take and eat, and instead of turning away, you come forward And you take the penalty that we deserve from our disconnection. And you see us now as Christ.
His perfect obedience is now ours. His blood washes away all of our sins. So I pray for your people here this morning. That this would just be a moment of of a divine intersection with the one who has saved them. That, That no matter what sin may have come to mind that they continue to try to hide, they would know you see it. You paid for it. They don't have to pay for it. And they don't have to hide from it. For those who don't know you, I pray they just remain seated. Ask themselves what they've trusted their whole lives to. Maybe they've chuckled at your word, at your existence. And their life is based on an illusion. Would you speak to them, I pray, even during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus took the bread and said, take and eat. He took the wine and said, this is my blood poured out for you. For those who have trusted in Christ, you come and take and eat.